0: Do you have any questions about practice? I think on David's talk, I'll mention a little bit of insight into rising and passing. The comment is about the phrase that Upandita uses called insight into arising and passing away of phenomena. And commenting that she sees thoughts come and go and sensations come and go, etc. But feels that the way Upandita uses the term is some sort of a benchmark, marker along the way. And what about that? Mm. The way Upandita uses that phrase does refer to a specific quality of knowing the nature of phenomena it does and it is literally just as it says insight into the arising and the passing away of phenomena which means that it's not as you acknowledge just intellectual appreciation of the fact, but it is through the steadiness of the mind or the steadiness of mindfulness being able to actually be present for the appearance of phenomena and steady enough to be there for the disappearance of phenomena, not because of reflection, but from very direct contact of the mind with phenomena. We have all had that insight, a lot. So in one sense, it's no big drama. But in another sense, what it means for us is different. And for some of us, it just means, oh, this, you know, God, not everything is changing. Ho-hum, you know, when I get out of here, then I'll fix my life. And for other of us, it's seeing everything is changing, everything is impermanent, everything is rising, passing away. And it, that knowledge goes to the very bottom of Everything that we know and hold to be true about ourselves and the world. And that is very disruptive to our life as we have known it. And so it can be a terrifying realization that everything is in flux. Or it can be a, oh, hum, everything's changing. I wonder what's for lunch. And so, (laughs) we have a wide variety of responses to that insightful knowledge and when we have covered all of them then we can say we have matured in our insight into a rising passing way there is (laughs) that's the technical side On the very humanistic side, there are some traditions that seem to have a very linear understanding of practice and just through their presentation of their material, particularly the Mahasi tradition of Burma, it seems like there is a progression of insights from here to there, to there, to there, to there, to there, to to boom, you know, the end, whatever that is, and unfortunately for language and the way books are written, etc., it comes across as being very linear, and in reality, in practice, there's no such thing. There just is not a linearity to the unfolding of the mind. It is anything but neat and predictable and linear. So, on a very subjective, personal, how I experience it level, um, there's no benchmarks, or everything is a benchmark. So, be a little bit careful about your relationship to how you hear this phrase, insight into rising, passing away. Does it scare you? Is it something you want to get? Is it something you are doubtful about ever having experienced? Is it something that you're very curious about? That's where our own individual practice is in the moment that we hear that phrase. And that's what we need to pay attention to. Does that sufficiently avoid the question? (laughs) Yes. Can you make a distinction between what's arising in the mind and the mind itself? Can I, can you repeat that? Uh, That's another uh, insight which uh, Upandita might have mentioned, or might not, but when one (laughs) one can see the arising and passing away of phenomena, you know, sensations come and go, thoughts come and go, da 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 da, come and go, emotions come and go, da da, okay. There is also another insight, somewhere in relationship to that one, before, after, above, below, to the left, to the right, something, where one sees the very arising and passing away of the knowing mind itself. Mm-hmm. They're different. What is your experience that you're referring to? Isn't all this just
1: the mind itself?
0: If I was a Zen master, now I would hit you with the stick, and then you'd say, Oh, that stick is not my mind, that is something else. No. You know? <laughs> I do not understand your comment or question. It might, that comment, might be a very valid way of holding your practice. Of holding your practice. Not that you're seeking an answer to that question but that it fuels your precision of attention so that you know for yourself, is this the way it is or otherwise? Because ultimately I, you know, I can say anything and you can choose to believe it or not, that's not, that's not here or there, but for you to truly know, isn't all this just the mind appearing and disappearing? Only you can discover that for yourself. And so, to hold that not as a thought that you reflect on, but really as a very broad container for the quality of your attention, then I think it could be very fruitful. But to reflect and think and read a book and another book and not so helpful for practice, really. But to use that question, is this all the mind, what is the mind, and what's the appearances in the mind, and what's that type of mm, urge to know clearly, can be a powerful support for practice. Some people have that, quality of investigation. It's not for everyone, but for some people, it can be very helpful. So in, in response, I wouldn't recommend or even encourage you to think about it more, but rather let it sit there unanswered and fuel the precision and the care and the the honesty, or the integrity of your practice. So that you really don't just believe anything, don't believe anything, but what you directly experience and know by your own mind. Yeah? Uh, yes? I would be too. (laughs) You better take that up with one of your teachers. (laughs) The other one. I think it'd be better to take that one up. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Question is about what's the benefits of begging in this tradition that has a monastic order, and their understanding the benefits of generosity or support. Um, well, just from my own experience as a monk, I would have to say, or what it what it was all about for me is. Allowing yourself to let go of everything and just rely on or depend on or be satisfied with what is offered today. That's it. Understanding that if one lives with integrity, very purely in their mind, in their behavior, and with and develop some um, understanding, then others will find that of benefit. Others will really appreciate that purity and just in an attempt to get it for themselves somehow, through contact, will support, will, you know, provide a a place uh, in the material requisites that one needs to live and they are very very little you know in those countries earlier in Burma a set of robes a roof and a little bit of food each day which is not much and that's really all you need to live physically. And it's great to have companions and other things, but I remember the time I was in Thailand. I went to a monastery over near Cambodia and it was way out there. And it was just about a hundred acre monastery and there was only two monks in it, Thai monks. They didn't speak any English. I didn't speak a word of Thai. There was nobody in the villages for miles around that spoke English. And I stayed there for three months. And you know, you just go to the village for your alms, and you get your alms. In the cabin that I was staying in, we would we wouldn't even call it a tool shed. I mean, it was just sticks, and it was shared with a couple of geckos and the bats and the squirrels and the, uh, there was a couple of owls that lived nearby and snakes and it was ants and it was horrendous. And there was nothing. I mean, there was minimal, you know, sticky rice and ground-up meat every day. And that was it. And I didn't see anybody, and I didn't talk to anybody, and I didn't do anything. I just practiced. It was the happiest time of my life. You don't need very much to be happy. You actually need to let go of a lot of things that you depend on, thinking that that's where happiness lies. And so, the order, the monastic... Monk and nun order is, you know, let go. See how much you can let go of. And here's the opportunity. We'll take care of your minimal needs. It's great. Fantastic opportunity. You have that same opportunity right here for another two and a half, three weeks. Your food is being provided, your laundry is being provided, you have a roof, you don't need anything else. Or maybe you do. (laughs) So we'll see. (laughs) So it's time for interviews and more practice, so enjoy your practice. (coughs) Do you have any questions about practice? Question or the comment is the request is for comment on the use of wise reflection in practice. to the extent that intentional use of thought supports your trying to be mindful, then that would be wise reflection. Hmm. Um, At uh, two o'clock after your lunch and a nap, and the bell rings for what is it? Walking period or something at 1.30 or two, and the reflection comes. Oh God, it was really hard this morning. I think I'll, I think I'll skip this walking and sleep through till the sitting bell, and then I'll, then I'll get up and go sit. And then the thought comes. Oh wait a minute. What is the schedule? Is what's the wise reflection here? Hmm. Wise reflection. Let's see. Um, maybe I should. Maybe I should try to be mindful of sleeping. Yeah. No, no, that's not going to work. Um, maybe I should really sit up in bed. Yeah, that would be better. Yeah. Huh? And then you get up and walk, and that's wise reflection. Really, that's what wise reflection is. That which supports being mindful. I thought I was referring to in while sitting, while sitting. yeah. Uh-huh. That there's a sense of reflection. That oh. That, that's what I'm referring to. Okay. Let me, let me. When one first sits down to begin the sitting practice, wise reflection would be, you know, inspiring yourself, encouraging yourself, reminding yourself what you're doing. And then you uh, begin, so to speak. And then you just with noticing primary object and other predominant objects as they appear. Noticing in that way is not reflection, is not reflecting. And in one sense, one should stay in that noticing mode for the duration. It happens, of course, that we find ourselves often drifting and thinking and planning and doing all that. And at that point, to merely notice that that's what's happening would be useful. To reflect on where you've been, what you're doing, etc., etc., not so useful. The nature of the um, unfolding of the mind or the insightful unfolding of the mind is through direct observation, through just being attentive to what appears understanding emerges. Insightful understanding at a psychological level, at a cosmological level, at, a, at many levels, and sometimes at ultimate truth level, dharma, insight. Quite naturally, with those openings to new understanding, The opening is the insight. There follows, quite naturally, a process and a period of reflecting on that understanding and its implications for all past, present and future. And that reflective ruminating takes place. It's, you know, we don't even have to intend it, you know, very strongly. It does. To the extent that you dwell in and allow that ruminating to continue, your insight practice has stopped. Instructions for Vipassana would be to note that as reflecting, commenting, figuring out, and not to intentionally reflect on the nature of that insight. I know that sounds like, uh, God, I had that great insight. Shouldn't I stop and think about it and what it means and da-da-da? It's really not necessary. It's as if the insight, whatever it is, at whatever level it is, flicks a switch in our understanding and the switch is flicked. That's it. Well, we don't have to go back and look at the switch, notice how we moved it from day to day, and just, and, you know, which room it was in, and the color, and, and, and the switch has been, flicked. that's it, let it go. It has, and we don't even need to remember it. We don't need to tell it to anybody. We don't need to tell it to ourselves. We don't have to remember it. We don't have to claim it as mine. We do, a lot, you know, but we don't need to. It will have the effect of um, transforming our understanding and our consciousness, ultimately. Claude? I've some wise reflection on my computer practice,
1: and I don't know if it's so wise, Just because I have a big problem there, and thats that, is that I have to admit that the dog Andy is rising. Might be natural, but uh, it is a problem. And I thought of that when I don't look so closely why the other people get happy, then it works better. <laughs> <laughs> that means I try to be happy for them, but I don't look so closely why they are happy. <laughs> <laughs> Now I don't know if I'm cheating. <laughs> After
0: all, in her own practice, I was asked not to look too closely and not uh, all the time at the at the cause of the suffering of it.
1: So I think it should be okay.
0: <laughs> of course, envy is the... Uh You know, near enemy, I suppose, of mudita, where one—it's not precisely it—but when it, when mudita serves to cultivate envy, I would probably back off from that person or that source of joy. So, I mean, you don't really want to cultivate envy. If you can feel joy for them without specifically dwelling on what brings them joy and therefore cultivating envy, fine. Maybe your reflection of just not looking so closely is probably useful, skillful. Just so that question doesn't get mixed up with the first one. The Brahma Viharas are reflective practices. Just so you know that, that's what that is. Skillful reflection, not for insight, but for developing concentration and those particular qualities of Metta, Karuna, Muditā. and that is the that is a skillful use of reflection, intentional use of thought to create wholesome mental state.
1: The, the what? The harmful tendencies the rising one. She said that if harmful uh, tendencies is already manifested in some kind of obsessional thinking that's involved with emotions, one of the protection is to practice samadhi. <clears throat> and she also said that if it hasn't yet manifested, one way of avoiding or trying to eliminate the tendencies to avoid certain certain situations that might lead to that, Sure. rising. Sure. And I find that when I'm facing some kind of particularly painful, obsessive thought, I don't purposefully try to get very concentrated and sit in and walk in and not look at it. And I'm either um, if I'm already obsessed, then I'm sort of taking myself away. I'm not quite yet I'm avoiding it. I'm practicing what you call wise avoidance. Oh, and I'm not sure if it's so wise. I'm not sure if I'm using it as a crutch. Or if I'm really, you know, if it's, if it's just a regular voice, if it's really kind of a wise voice. You know,
0: <laughs> I think I got the, the question. When the mind is obsessing, through being conditioned conditioned by some afflictive mental state. When the thought pattern is going on and it's just (laughs) raging, as you acknowledge practicing, samadhi practicing concentration, really working with just primary object of sitting or walking can be a very skillful way to just avoid or ignore, or cut through, however you want to understand that, that particular mental state. If you know that putting yourself in a certain situation, where certain conditions exist, wherever that is, whoever it's with, whatever the behavior is that's expected of you, if you know that that is going to stir up or condition in you unwholesome, obsessive, afflictive mental states, I would avoid it. And that's skillful.
1: Give me an example.
0: you can either diligently note that particular thought, feeling, or whatever, or you can go back to the breath. Either one is very skillful. Both skillful. no, No preference, so to speak, to that. It's when it is fully blown, present, and it's raging out of control, then it's not as if you have a choice. It's there, you know. It's all all you can be aware of, all that you are attentive to. Then mindfulness asks that we recognize it and say, this is mm, whatever it is. Okay, it's there, it's happening. Now, can I be with that? Can I open to that non-judgmentally? Can I experience that without contracting, without denying without making it something else just with it as it is when it's fully present that's 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 our task to acknowledge it to recognize it acknowledge it see if we can open to it and in that way we might see through it or we might just have to hang out with it for some period of time If you can, that is okay also. yeah Because yeah. often we ha- I mean, often we have a choice of hanging out in this stuff, or just with a little more direction in the mind, staying with our primary object. Do that. I think I mean, we, we talk about the two poles so to speak of practice one being really working with the primary object a lot and the other being a choiceless awareness of just being with whatever arises not to make a generalization for everyone but most of us could work with the primary object a lot more could benefit from working with the primary object a lot more and not open not it's not, op- not, not opening, but not floating with the random choiceless stuff that comes up insignificantly, most of the time. That is not particularly concentrated awareness. It's kind of a general floating along and more or less aware. Mm-hmm. And to work more continuously more precisely with the primary object will cut through that superficial layer. So that you really get in there, so to speak. The limitation of working with the primary object a lot is that it brings up a lot of um, it can get very tight and because it is so difficult we often end up with a lot of judgment we just notice how often we're not with the primary object and ugh, you know judging ourselves and criticizing and that in turn undermines our confidence and we you know and practice falls apart that way so you have to be really skillful sensitive to your use of the primary object and not just kind of bull your way Into it, but really sensitively, being with it. Over, over limit. Sorry. Um, Oh, one reminder. Do you have any remaining questions? You feel. Right. The comment was, he feels like he has a very limited vocabulary when it comes to noting his experiences and wants to know how he can extend that. My humor is at peak this morning. Down, down. (laughs) Um, You could get a dictionary. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to ask if there's a program Pardon? If there's a program. A program? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <clears throat> I guess I, in my own experience, I never really got clear what my experience was until I had to note and report to Saito Upandita. <clears throat> and he, as I have acknowledged before, is very demanding in his, in your reporting to him. and. A couple of things come to my mind as memorable turning points in that, working with him. And one was when there was a time when my practice just really fell apart. I mean, it just felt terrible. It was just chaos. It was totally out of control. I couldn't, I couldn't be mindful for two instants. You know, there was one moment of mindfulness and gone. And it was just oh, bad. It was not pleasant. And, of course, my judgments of my practice weren't any better, and my judgments of myself were even worse. So, bad. And when I went to him, I didn't want to report at all, but You know, give me a break, I took a day off, I'll come back tomorrow. But he encouraged me to uh, put aside everything that I thought I was supposed to be experiencing and everything that I thought was the right thing to say and um, everything that sounded like it could have come out of a book he said, "Put that all aside, and then now just tell me what your experience is, as if you were like a, a three-year-old kid." And a three-year-old child does not have a extensive vocabulary, but they can talk about their experience, and you get a pretty good idea what their experience is by how they talk, how they act, and so that's what I did. You know, it was and he said, "Oh yeah, okay, I got it." You know. And so <laughs> that's that's a big a big part of it trust that you can put words to it if you keep it simple the other thing one of joseph's great lines is keep it simple if it starts to get complicated your noting starts to get complicated you're doing something wrong keep it really simple even simpler than you think you have simplified it to. Just every day, eliminate something that you're doing and do it even simpler than that. The other thing is, if your noting takes more than one word to describe what your experience is, that's too much. Just one word. Really keep it simple. Simple. It's not meant to be a narrative or a a dialogue or a monologue. It's it's just a momentary recognition. This, then this, then this. And it requires, of course, that you really steady your mind. That you just connect and really sustain your attention on just this so that you know it. And then... With recognition, a word comes, hopefully. And if no word comes, it's just, you know, that experience. And you just keep, again, again and again and again. And pretty soon it'll become clearer what that is. elements from that earlier in the retreat you mean the list of material elements mm-hmm. oh, That that's a that's a kind of a helpful list for material experiences you No know, hardness tightness stretching pressure and then there's the whole realm of thought and feeling and that is you know at least as long, if not longer. Anyway, my question is about that Bill Russell quote. Yeah.
1: Um, so, I'm sure I'm not human. When I had an identical experience off, uh, playing volleyball, actually, and um, I treated it hot. You treated it what?
0: Good pot. <laughs> <laughs> Undistracted focus, fascinated interest, non-distraction, the the power of the concentrated mind is beyond your imagination and when the mind gets concentrated peculiar, non-ordinary things happen a lot phantasmagorically you know, the things that we hear about the saints of of Buddhist or Christian traditions and the the things that just sound utterly uh, fiction (laughs) They're not. So are they contacting absolute reality? Is that, mm-hmm. okay, that's kind of Let's just say that they have mastered conceptual reality to a point. I mean, you know, people that walk on waters and mm-hmm. you know fly through the air and appear in two different places and stuff like that. As I hear it, not that I, I haven't believe me, I don't know anything about it personally, but I've questioned my teachers pretty a lot. And it's due to the power of a concentrated mind. Putting aside certain conceptual reality and working with material and mental elements to do something else. Not bad, huh? (laughs) You know, for example, example, the earth element is what makes solidity, hmm? makes things hard and, you know, solid. Now, ordinarily, we would say that water is, it's not very hard. You know, you, you, you try to walk on water and you, you fall through. It's not hard enough to support a human body. Yet, they say, those who have mastered the material elements and really can know the earth element for what it is, no problem. We can walk on water. But Thich Nhat Hanh had a great quote about walking on water. You know, he said the real miracle of spiritual practice is not walking on water, it's not flying through the air, but it's learning how to walk on earth. That's the real challenge. How to walk, how to, learn, to learn how to walk. To the dining room. <laughs> I mean, and really be present with walking to the dining room. That's the challenge. That's how hard it really is. <clears throat> this um, there's about five days of silence left, and. What is happening now is something like a slow death of of our life as silent renunciates. And it is really important and it's very instructive to watch how you die. What comes up for you when the end draws near. Anxiety, excitement, fear, dread, planning your next life. Calm, easy presence with the feeling of loss that's inevitable. It is really helpful. To make a commitment to finish your retreat, to take the silence to Wednesday morning, to really keep the silence, to really keep that diligence of attention, so that you're not leaking and uh, leaking your mindfulness and in splattering your stuff on around the place and on other people. So that you can really see what this process of something ending is all about. It's, it's, it's a rehearsal. You know, we have a lot of endings in our life, whether it's ending of jobs, ending of relationships, ending of retreats, ending of life. How we end our retreat is very instructive of how we end other things in our life. So it's a valuable, I mean, it's just a very instructive time to to be paying very close attention. And there's no right way. You know, there'll be some fear, there'll be some anxiety, some dread, some excitement, some planning. Okay, just see all that, you know, without um, acting it all out, or without disrupting your um, without losing your integrity. And there'll be, believe me, uh, the, the talk days of Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, more than enough time to talk yourself silly. Believe me. You, you'll be more than ready to leave long before leaving time. Because you'll be talked out. So there's no hurry, believe me. And every leak of yours at the bulletin board or nudging someone or walking around the loop talking is a huge distraction to the others. So even if you can't keep your own practice together, please support those who are really trying to. So gently, gently... You know, walking, non-talking. So, have a good day.